You're listening to Living Faith, the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Avon Park, Florida. First Baptist Church is located at 100 North Lake Avenue in Avon Park, Florida. We meet Sunday morning at 9.30 a.m. for Sunday school and 10.45 a.m. for morning worship. Sunday evening services are at 6 p.m. On Wednesday, we meet at 6 p.m. for our weekly Bible study along with our immersive student and children's ministries. Find out more at www.fbcap.net or give us a call at 863-453-6681. You can email us at info at fbcap.net. We'd love to connect with you soon. This is part of our current Sunday morning sermon series, Look and Live, Life and Light in the Gospel of John. Thank you, our God, for this day and this opportunity to come into your house worship you with your people, to pray together, sing together, and to hear the good news proclaimed. Thank you that nothing indeed does compare to the promise that we have in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that is why this morning we praise him, we magnify him, we worship him because he alone is worthy So direct our hearts and our minds to you this morning. Help us to listen. Help us to worship. Yes, even worship through hearing your word proclaimed to us. Let your Holy Spirit be with us right now to lead and guide us into all truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Well, uh, I met this morning <laughs> because Pastor John, obviously, and Miss Sharon have uh, gone up to Kentucky uh, for the birth of their granddaughter, who was born on Friday morning at about 1.30, uh, aptly named Georgia Ann Beck. So <laughs> they're enjoying time with their family, and Brantley and Katie and the baby are all doing well, and I'm sure everyone's having a wonderful time together. So let's continue to pray for them. And let's continue to uphold them in our, our prayer as a church and the whole family uh, for safe travels for Pastor John and Miss Sharon as they come back and for the baby and the family as they grow together. Um, but this morning, we've gathered together to hear God's word. So uh, open with me, if you would, to John chapter 13. We're going to continue uh, as previously planned in our series through John. And that, of course, brings us to the 13th chapter. And I want to draw your attention to this uh, yellow insert in your bulletin. Uh, Pastor John had compiled this together from the Gospel Coalition website. This would be a great tool for you this week uh, to read through. It goes through every day, starting with today, Palm Sunday, and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, on into Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, next Sunday. Uh, so use this in your devotion time in the morning or in the evening, whenever you read your Bible. Uh, there's scripture references there for you to read and then a short devotional thought that will kind of help guide you through chronologically the events of Jesus last week uh, in his earthly ministry. Uh, today, we're, we're kind of timed up fairly well in John 13 and I think you'll see why these events took place, uh, if our calendar is right, on the Thursday before we typically celebrate Good Friday, so the night before. And this is what many commentators believe is the beginning of John's second section of his gospel. 
The kids, I'm sure, uh, hear me say this almost every Wednesday night because I feel like every time we turn to a new page in Matthew, we're going into a new section, and I always say, this is a new page, it's a new page. But really, many commentators do say that John 12, or John 13, is the beginning of Act 2 of John's Gospel. That we have spent 11 or 12 chapters with Jesus in his public ministry to the crowds, preaching, teaching, doing his miracles and the signs and the I am statements that we've read about. And now in John 13 through John 17, we enter into a second phase. And he comes away from the crowds and he's now with his disciples, the 12, in an upper room. A very intimate, close, personal setting with just them. And it's going to be this way, like I said, for four or five chapters until we get to the third act, which is, of course, his betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, and then the resurrection. So this is kind of the little uh, interlude, if you will, between Act 1 and Act 3, which kind of bookend this little section of John's gospel. Many commentators also believe, and I think there's some, some value to this theory, that John is kind of picturing the trajectory of a priest in the temple. From the outer courts with the masses and the crowds into the holy place with the inner circle. Just the priests are allowed in there. And then ultimately on Good Friday, Jesus will enter into the most holy place, the holy of holies. To sprinkle not the blood of goats and calves on the mercy seat, but to offer his own body as a sacrifice as our great high priest and the Lamb of God. And so we enter into this very somberly, very reverently understanding that this, this is Jesus' final words to his disciples. He prays for his disciples. He teaches them. He's preparing them for what's to come in the next few days. He's preparing them ultimately for what's to come in the coming years. Those things we read about in the book of Acts. The things that tradition and history tells us about their martyrdom, their deaths. Jesus is preparing them for that with these words. At the beginning of John 12, we started with an anointing. We've sung today that he is the great king who comes in the name of the Lord. We worship him as our king. And in John 12, in those first couple verses, Mary anoints his feet. And we saw how that was kind of a picture of her anointing Jesus as king. Last week, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the triumphal entry as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And the people said, as we've sung today, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For all they knew, they thought this was the Messiah coming in on his a donkey to, to liberate us from Rome, to kick out all the foreign oppressors and to reestablish David's throne. And they said, Hosanna, come save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But these, even these things, as grand and wonderful as they are to read about, are just earthly pictures of the bigger reality. In John 1, verses 1 through 18, we read, remember, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And later in that chapter, we see that that Word who was God and who was with God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And it says, no one has seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So Jesus has been with God and was God from eternity past in the worship of the angels, not just a humble servant like Mary anointing his feet with oil, 
Not just the crowds crying Hosanna, even though they really didn't understand why they were saying these things. He's been in the presence of angels and innumerable saints worshiping from eternity past, saying, you are the king of the universe, the creator God of everything that is. And that brings us to John 13. He is king. He has been king and he will be king. But what kind of king is he? Start in verse 1 with me. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if you, if you do not let me wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Today, I want to look at four things from this this passage that we've just read. Number one, the sovereign plan of God. Number two, the servant king. Number three, an example to follow. And number four, a grave warning. So in these first three verses, the sovereign plan of God. To this point, you've noticed some language in John's gospel. Hopefully, you've been paying attention to the wording and how John uses images and places and words to to paint his picture and to tell his story. To this point, we keep seeing this relation of these huge events in Jesus' life to these feasts. In John 2, 13, before he cleanses the temple, we're told it's the feast of Passover. In John 5, 1, before he heals the man on the Sabbath, we're told there was a feast of the Jews, probably Passover, Pentecost, or tabernacles. In John 6, 4, before he feeds the 5,000 and then walks on water, we're told it's about time for the feast of Passover. In John 7, 2, he says, I will give you streams of living water, We're told it's the festival of tabernacles, of booths. 
John 10, 2, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, it's the feast of dedication. And in John 12, 1, we saw Jesus anointed as king. We're told it was a week before Passover. And today, in John 13, 1, you'll notice John says, it was time for the feast of Passover. Not only that little device John has used, but throughout the gospel, he's also been using Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come. His hour had not yet come. In John 2, 4, John 7, 6, John 7, 8, John 7, 30, and in John 8, 20, John has used this as punctuation marks in Jesus' ministry as they tried to arrest him or they tried to come at him, but they weren't even able to because God had not said that it was his hour yet. But here in John 13, 1, we see not only that it's another feast, the day of Passover, before the day of Passover, but we see that Jesus says again, he knew that his hour had come. Back in John 12, verse 23, he actually said, now the hour has come. So in this one verse, we have the convergence of these two devices that John has used throughout his gospel to bring us to this point. It's in the context of a feast, not just a feast, but the feast of Passover, the highest day, the highest feast day. Not only is it just a time, but it is now the time. The hour has come. And so John uses these two things in convergence to show us that God's perfect, sovereign timing of all of this has now come to a head. It's coming together. The story is being played out before us in its fullness. It says that Jesus came and he knew his hour had come. To do what? John says to depart. To depart to the Father. Jesus lived to die. But this wasn't just a cold, mechanical, tunnel vision Jesus that just had the end goal in mind. Okay, I'm coming to die. Not only did it say he knew his hour had come to depart, but it said having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus isn't just concentrated merely on his mission, the end game, the cross, although that's in the forefront the entire time. But throughout his time on earth, he loved his own and he loved them to the end. Loving them all the way through. That phrase literally means it's all on the table, everything is out to the fullest extent kind of love. He loved them to the end. In verse two though, we get a foreshadowing of not so nice things to come. During the supper when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Who was behind this betrayal? According to John 13, two, the devil, Satan, had enticed in a very real dangerous, sinful, terrible way, had enticed Judas in his unbelief, in his greed, in his cold-hearted unbelief, had enticed him and ensnared him to do this wicked thing against Jesus. But nevertheless, in spite of that, Jesus says in John 13, 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. That's trust in God's sovereign, eternal timing and plan. 
Yes, things are working out the way God wanted them to. It's the feast of Passover. The hour has finally come. All the things are playing out the way they should. But then you get this really terrible note right in the middle that the devil had already put it in Judas' heart to betray Jesus. And we might be tempted to think, oh no, the plan is going awry. The plan is going to mess up. Judas is going to mess up everything. If only we could stop Judas. If only Satan hadn't done that. Why wouldn't God stop that? Why wouldn't Jesus stop it? We fail to understand what's going on in the life of Jesus if we think that way. We fail to understand more often than not what's going on in our lives when these kind of things happen. God's timing, God's plan, the convergence of all these things in our lives that so often bring us to the point where we think things are finally the way they should be, things are finally playing out the way they should be, this is God's plan, this is God's timing, and then Satan throws a wrench in it, and we think, oh my word, it's all over. This is a dead end. Jesus' confidence, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, verse three. Knowing. Jesus knew that Satan had done this in Judas. Jesus knew exactly what Judas was going to do. Jesus knew exactly what was coming for him in the next few days. Nevertheless, he knew also that God had given all things into his hand. Knowing. Too often in our worship, too often in our Christian life, we place more emphasis on how we feel about things or how our circumstances make us think and feel than what we know about God to be true and about his word to be true. Jesus does not take this time to despair or be brokenhearted, although I'm sure it was sorrowful to him to know what was coming, to know what Judas had done, to know what Satan was doing. I don't know what kind of emotions filled Jesus, but it doesn't say that Jesus, okay, all these things are coming to play and Jesus knew what had happened with the devil and Judas and then he began to despair. It was followed by confidence. How many of us need to remind ourselves of Romans 8, 28 from time to time, maybe minute to minute, all things work together for the good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And not just some general willy-nilly call that I belong to Jesus. No, the next verse tells us what it means to be called. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. To what? To be conformed into the image of his son. So no matter what affliction, what trial, what pain, what suffering, what besetting sin, what bad habit comes into your life, you can trust that God is using all of it for his desired outcome for your life, which might not be pure happiness and joy all the time, but it will be looking like Jesus so that you can rejoice in those trials and rejoice in the suffering. That's the key to suffering as a Christian is to realize that the end game for God is not your destruction or your punishment, but your being conformed into the image of his son. It's your holiness, it's your salvation. So maybe we need to know some things from time to time in pain, in trial and affliction. I am more than a conqueror through him who loved me. No one can bring a charge against God's elect. Nobody can bring a charge against me, not even Satan himself. For nothing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Jesus trusted the Father's hand. Number two, the servant king. Number one, it said Jesus knew his hour had come. Verse three, Jesus knowing 
that the Father had given all things into his hand. There was now action put to that knowledge. In verse 4, Jesus rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. We hate feet today, don't we? Some people like them, you know, whatever. As Joy said this morning, whatever floats your goat. I said boat, but nope, it's funnier with goat. Whatever floats your goat. We don't like feet. Our feet are covered with socks. Our feet have shoes on them most of the time. We don't walk on dusty, dirty roads every day from place to place. But these people did with sandals, things with straps on them, open, bare feet, on dust, on dirt, sometimes in animal waste, filthy, nasty. And this job of washing feet was necessary in a house, especially a house of nobility or a house before a feast or a formal dinner like this one surely was. But there was always a slave or a servant or a child or someone to do this terrible, nasty work for the family. Certainly the master of the house never did it himself. So that's why it's so so shocking about this picture of Jesus, presumably the master of the feast, sitting at the center of this table, or at the head of the table as some would portray it, suddenly stopping what he's doing, taking off his outer garment, wrapping a towel around his waist, and then beginning to wash the filthy, nasty feet of these men. Certainly a master never did this. Certainly someone of nobility, a king, would never do this. But Jesus does. And in doing so, Jesus shows us what he came to do. In verses 1 through 8 of John 12, we saw that Jesus was anointed as king. In verses 12 through 19 of John 12, Jesus enters into Jerusalem as king. But again, these are just pictures of the heavenly reality that Jesus has been king from all eternity past. And then in John 13, stoops down, takes off his garment, puts on a towel, becomes like a slave to these men and washes their feet. And the picture gets even better than that. He's not just hailed by a king by many people, worshipped by the angels from eternity past, fellowship with the Father and the Spirit from eternity past, enjoying eternal glory and worship and praise and honor and adoration from eternity past. But he steps into space and time, puts our flesh on himself and serves us. He strips himself of everything that belongs to him, his glory, his honor, his worship, his praise, his place at the right hand of the Father, and he steps out into time and space for us. Puts on a towel in this picture, but the picture of the reality goes far deeper. Jesus put our flesh around himself. He clothed himself in human flesh and came down and served us. Verse 7, Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm doing right now, but later you will. Hopefully today we do. Look at Philippians chapter 2 with me. 
if what's going on in John 13 is a picture, Philippians 2, 6 through 8, tells us what the picture means. Philippians 2, kind of at the end of verse 5. Jesus, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, that is a thing to be selfishly held on to and coveted and clenched to oneself. But he emptied himself, verse 7, by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. This is the spiritual reality, the heavenly, ultimate reality of what we're seeing in John 13. Jesus, the great creator, king of the universe, stepping down from heaven, wrapping our flesh around himself and serving us as a slave. And we're reminded of those words from earlier in the chapter that he loved his own to the end. Look back at Philippians 2 now, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the last thing Jesus could do for you is to give himself for you. Talking about loving us all the way through, loving us to the end. Jesus gives all that he possibly can becoming a man, living a sinless life for us, obeying the law to absolute perfection for us, suffering for us, dying for us, even a death on a cross, a cruel, shameful, criminal way to die. Jesus loved his own to the end. Back in John 13, though, Peter says, verse six, Lord, you'll never wash my feet can almost hear a little echo of John the Baptist when Jesus came to be baptized by him. I should be baptized by you, yet you would baptize me. Or vice versa, you should baptize me, yet you want me to baptize you. Peter says, Lord, you're not gonna wash my feet. Peter doesn't understand the full scope of Jesus' identity and his person and what he certainly doesn't understand what he came to do quite yet or he wouldn't have objected to this. He would have understood it. But Peter says, you're never going to wash my feet. Is this humility on Peter's part? Is it pride? I don't think it's for us to try to understand Peter's motive. He honors Jesus. He thinks Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And obviously this is a weird thing for the Messiah, the king of Israel, to stoop down and do. And so it might be easy for us to pick on Peter all the time and to say, why don't you get it, Peter? We wouldn't have gotten it either. We probably would have gotten it even less than Peter did. At least Peter understood he needed to be cleansed. Many of us hear the offer of Jesus washing away our sin, faith in the gospel, eternal life, repentance, salvation. We hear that offer and we scoff at it. Not because... We know we're guilty and we don't think we're worthy of salvation, but we scoff at it because we think we're worthy of salvation and we don't really need Jesus to clean us. We get it probably less than Peter does. We don't want to even admit we're dirty. At least Peter was saying, Lord, why would you do this for me? 
we say, Lord, I don't need you to do this for me. But in verse 8, Jesus hints that this picture goes far deeper than even Peter understands. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter wanting to honor the Lord. Peter, Peter wants nothing more than to be close to Jesus, than to honor Jesus and to love Jesus. And so Jesus says this dire warning to Peter, unless you let me do this, you have no part with me. And he says, okay, not just my feet, but my head and my hands, wash me. If, that, if that's what it means to, to be with you, to be your disciple, then wash all of me, not just my feet. And Jesus, I don't know if Jesus ever had any air of just disbelief at, at the, the denseness of his disciples. I don't know, but Peter, I can see Jesus as if Peter, Peter, you're already clean. Just your feet need washing. In the world does this mean? In this day and age, they probably didn't take baths every day, let alone two or three or showers. They bathed seldomly, maybe once a week, every couple days. But their feet needed washing every single day so that their houses weren't filthy with all the dust and grime and junk of the street. But Jesus says in John 12, or John 12, 10, he already said, you're clean. How are we clean? John 15, three, if you were to go forward two chapters and just look at that one verse, John 15, three, you don't have to, I'll say it for you. Jesus says, you are clean by the word I have spoken to you. Ah, what kind of cleanness are we talking about? Why does he tell Peter he's clean? Why does he tell Peter he doesn't need an all over washing, he just needs his feet washed? Jesus says, you are clean. John 15, three, you're clean by the word I've spoken to you. It reminds me of Ephesians 5, 26, when talking about the bride and the groom and the church and Christ. And it says that he ransomed her and he washed her with the water of the word. Beautiful picture of Christ and his church saving her as if it were a woman living in a, a sexually immoral lifestyle and that Jesus comes and rescues his bride and washes her clean and spotless to present her to God. Unbelievers here this morning, you haven't trusted in, in Christ. You don't know what it means to follow Jesus. You've not committed your life to him in salvation. The message is even more urgent for you. You need cleansing, okay? You need the washing away of your sins that only comes through faith in Christ by the blood of his cross. You receive new life by the spirit, new birth, regeneration, all those wonderful pictures that we see in baptism, washing, dying to your old self, being raised to newness of life. Through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you can be clean today. But believers, this message is for you too. Yeah, you're clean. Through faith in the word of God, that you heard the gospel, you heard the word and you believed, Jesus says you're clean. You're forgiven, you're justified. Heaven is your home. But you still sin daily, hourly, by the minute, by the second, you're not perfect, I'm not perfect. And we need that daily cleansing, the daily application of the blood of Jesus. Not as a way of staying saved, you're saved, you're clean. 
but as a way of continuing in joy in our salvation and fellowship with God and fellowship with the Spirit and fellowship with his people. That daily cleansing and confession of sin, daily repenting of those things that do not honor God. Thankfully, God is faithful and just and he does it. According to 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin continually, daily. In this picture of feet washing, Jesus is saying your body's clean, but you have this daily dirt and junk on your feet. We as believers are clean by the blood of the lamb, by the blood of Jesus through faith in the gospel, but we need daily cleansing and Jesus' blood still supplies that. Jesus takes off the outer garments of his glory and his worship as God. Jesus puts on a towel, wraps our flesh around himself and he washes our feet. He dies for us. Why? To cleanse us. And this is the warning for all of us today. If we will not yet let Jesus, if we will not let Jesus cleanse us, we will have no part with him. If we reject this cleansing for any reason, we pretend it's humility or we're just stuck in unbelief or indecision. If we don't let Jesus clean us, we will die in our sins and be condemned forever. Thankfully, this is not the end of the story though. Jesus offers cleansing through his death. Jesus offers forgiveness by his blood. Look at verse 12 though. John 13, 12. When he had washed their feet, he put on his outer garments and resumed his place. The death on the cross, the suffering, the agony, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, the nails, the whip, the crown of thorns, the mockery, the forsaking of his father's own love on him was not the end of the story. He was put in the ground, buried. We all know the story. We'll celebrate it next week. We really celebrate it every Sunday. Jesus came out of the tomb alive, physically, with his glorified resurrection body, literally, physically walking out of the grave. That's the end of the story. Ascending to the right hand of the Father, giving us the Holy Spirit, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father, praying for us until he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Isn't that what Paul concludes with in Philippians chapter two? He was in the form of God, he emptied himself, he became a servant to the point of death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's exactly what we're reading about in John thirteen twelve. if you're not getting it by now. After he had accomplished his work in cleansing us, he resumed his place. After he died for us on the cross and was buried and came out of the tomb, he resumed his place and is now seated at the right hand of power. Look at Hebrews chapter one. Hebrews chapter one, starting in verse one. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. It sounds a lot like John, doesn't it? And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Yet he came down. And after making purification for sins, after he had washed us, after he had cleansed us, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Quickly, turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest, every earthly priest, every sinful human priest in the old covenant stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You almost hear a bit of futility in that thing. It was good, it was holy, it was righteous, but it only pointed to something bigger. And these earthly priests were never finished with their job. They were never done. It was never accomplished. But they stood daily, repeatedly offering sacrifices that could never remove sins. But when Christ, verse 12, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Glory to God. Hallelujah. He sat down at the right hand of God, finished his work for you and for me. It's done. It's complete. No more standing. No more repeated sacrifices. No more pretending that sins were erased through the blood of Jesus. Now they're clean. They're gone. We're purified. We're set free from our sin. Praise the Lord. And he's done. It's done. And he sat down. Perfect. Final. Atonement. If Good Friday tells us that he came to clean us, Resurrection Sunday says it's done. Listen to these words from this song. Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Lay aside the garments that are stained with sin. There's a fountain flowing for the soul unclean. How about that line from Rock of Ages? Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood. You know it. Lose all their guilty stains. Are you clean? Are you being clean, believer? How can we refuse him? An example to follow. Jesus says after resuming his place in John 13, verse 12, latter part of that verse, do you understand what I've done for you? Of course they don't. Do do we understand what he's done for us? The pure mercy and grace of the creator, God and king of the universe, stepping out of heaven, taking on flesh and serving us to the end in this way. He says, if I, the king of heaven, died to cleanse you, you might ought to think of being gracious and kind from time to time. Merciful, forgiving, gracious. 
Again, isn't that what Paul says in Philippians 2? Isn't that the very context for what he says about Jesus? If there's any joy, if there's any good things to come out of what the report from the Philippian church was, let it be this, that you have the same mind, the same love, that you're unified in humility, counting others more important than yourselves, placing others ahead of yourselves. Then he goes into that thing about Jesus, who did that for us. The point is so clear. If Jesus, Jesus says, if I, your Lord and master, have done this for you, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You also ought to forgive one another. You ought to show grace to one another. You ought to show mercy to one another. And then he says, this is to your blessing. It's your benefit. Blessed, happy are you if you do these things. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who did this for us. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells the parable of a wicked servant who owed a large debt to his master. 20,000 years worth of wages, according to the parable. And it's meant to be so hyperbolic that it's hard to believe. But the king says, you're forgiven. He shows the servant mercy. That same servant then goes to a servant that owes him way less than 20,000 years. I think it's three years of wages. And he chokes him by the neck and makes him pay what he owes when the word gets back to the king who forgave the first servant of his unbelievable debt, he's angry at the wicked servant and puts him in prison till he pays the last penny, which would be impossible. And Jesus says, you ought to forgive others of their insignificant debts and sins against you when you consider the infinite, unbelievable debt that you owed to God. Ephesians 4:32 Forgive others just as God in Christ forgave you. 1 Corinthians 6:11 After listing all these lists of sins and people that will not inherit the kingdom of God, Paul wants us to remember rather than shaking our heads in disbelief at the sins that he says and how terrible are those people and how wicked and unclean are those people and God's going to get them. Paul reminds us such were some of you. But then he says but you were cleansed. You were washed. And we ought to remember what Jesus has done for us and show grace and kindness and mercy to one another. So when we are wronged, when we are sinned against, when we are cursed, when people speak evil of us or do evil to us and we're tempted to slip into self-righteousness and hypocrisy and hate and anger and resentment and bitterness, Maybe we could sing an old Happy Goodman song to ourselves. When I think of how he came so far from glory, came to dwell among the lowly such as I, to suffer shame and such disgrace. On Mount Calvary, take my place. Then maybe we should ask ourselves this question Who am I? Who am I that a king would bleed and die for? Who am I that he would pray, not my will, thine, Lord? The answer I may never know. Why he ever loved me so. That to an old rugged cross he'd go. For who am I?
In the last verses, we see a grave warning. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it takes place that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Judas was enticed by Satan, his own greed, his idolatry of himself, whatever he thought this Messiah thing would be. Satan lured him in, trapped him, and killed his soul. And Judas has no one to blame but himself. He would not see, therefore he could not see. Maybe this is the case with some of us today. Standing by, to the side, standing in the corner, the shadows of this church stuff, faith, religion, Christianity, whatever you think about it. We're stuck in unbelief, but we think it's just indecision. We think it's just waiting for a perfect time where I feel like I've had my fun, enjoyed my life to commit myself to Christ. Waiting, indecisive, hearing the call of the gospel, but rejecting it. You think you have more time? Maybe we should hear God's words to the rich fool in Luke 12, 20, when he said, you fool, tonight your life will be required of you. In the next second, your life may be required of you and you will stand before God and he will ask you what you've done with his son, Jesus. And indecision and undecisiveness, ambivalence, maybe even I liked the idea a little bit, will not work. Only those who have bowed to him as Lord will inherit eternal life. Jesus references Psalm 41.9, he who ate my bread lifted up his heel against me. It's a Psalm of David. It's referencing a time when one of his trusted advisors, Ahithophel, betrayed David and served Absalom, his wicked, rebellious son, in a fight against King David. Jesus paints this vivid picture for us. Who would remain in unbelief? Who, who do you think this morning that you're putting off? Is it your wife? Come to church with me. Maybe you've hesitantly obliged today. You think you're rejecting your children who have been baptized and saved and they're pleading with you to do the same? You think you're putting them off? Who does Jesus say you receive when you receive him? The Father. Who are you rejecting if you reject Jesus? The Father. And if you reject those who are speaking to you about him and witnessing to you about him, you are not ultimately rejecting them and pushing them away. You're pushing Jesus away. And when you push Jesus away, you push God away. And you're ultimately saying no to eternal life. And you're agreeing wholeheartedly to condemnation. 
That's exactly what Jesus says in verse 20. Whoever receives the one I sent receives me, and whoever receives me receives the Father. And the, uh, the inverse is also true. If you reject those that God has sent into your life, you're rejecting Jesus. And if you reject Jesus, you reject God. So the invitation is this. Lay aside your pride today. Take off the proverbial sandals and the shoes. The fig leaves you've tried to sew together to cover your own shame and unrighteousness. Just take them off. Submit yourself to this word that has come today. And Hebrews 4 says it's a living and active word that cuts down to the soul. That lays everything bare and exposed before God. You know what? Just say, here I am. Naked, spiritually unclean, filthy, dirty, and ashamed. Clean me or I will die. Clothe me in your righteousness. That's what Paul says happens in Ephesians 5. He doesn't just clean us. But he presents us to God as a bride without spot or wrinkle, clothing us with his perfect righteousness. Jesus stands today ready to cleanse, ready to clean you, forgive you, take away your sins. He's loved us to the very end, stooping down so far from glory to love us to serve us, to die for us, to clean us. And he asks us this morning, just like he asked the leper in Mark chapter one, if you're willing, I will make you clean. Will you be clean today? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for the gift of your son, Jesus. Thank you so much for the gospel, the good news that comes to save us from our sin, to offer us cleansing and washing by the, by the very blood of Jesus himself. Convict unbelieving hearts today. Bring them to saving faith in you today. Help sinners to acknowledge their guilt before you today and to receive the free offer of cleansing and forgiveness that comes through Jesus. It's in his name we pray.